We've been journeying through this book of Numbers, right? The better title for it really would be that book of wanderings as the nation of Israel, they're wandering in the desert for 38 years, 40 years. Oftentimes we say they're wandering because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of trust in God. And as we've talked about, the whole theme of the book of Numbers is obedience versus disobedience. And so often when we disobey God, it's fueled by fear. Fears creep in and then we say, no God, I can't do this. Fear of loss, fear of what man will say about us, fear of what man will think of us, right, can oftentimes drive us to be disobedient to the Lord. Usually when we obey God, it's fueled by faith. We know the book of Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible it is simply not possible to please God if we're not going to Him by faith and taking those steps of faith. Obeying God and seeking God even when we can't see it, even when it doesn't make sense. Usually that's when we are obedient to God, right? But disobedience, it's led by fear. Israel, they were afraid at the entrance of the promised land. They were afraid that God could seek them and protect them through the battles of the promised land. And that's why they said no. We won't go in. Our own children will be devoured by the giants there in the promised land. Fast forward 38 years. Those very same kids that they thought were going to be devoured by the giants, where are they? They're ready to fight giants now. And we're going to see how God, he protects the same kids that the parents said, oh, they're going to get eaten up and destroyed by the giants. God protects them. And now they're giant killers and giant destroyers because they're being obedient to God and his word. But we'll start in Numbers 21. Two weeks ago, we saw the beautiful picture of the bronze serpent, how it points to Jesus. Now we start off in verse 10. Read verse 10 through 15. It says, Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth, and they camped in Aijah, Abiram, in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered, and from there they moved and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Supa, the brooks of Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. So here what we're beginning to see is the journey of the nation of Israel as they begin to go into the promised land. Where are they moving? Where are they going to? They're going to this area. They're going by these brooks. They're going through these mountains, through this situation and place and time period, right? All of these different locations. Here in verse 14, we have this ancient book mentioned, the book of the wars of the Lord. Somehow it's an ancient book that's been lost in time. No, we don't need this book today. You don't have to go on Raiders of the Lost Ark looking for this book. So you get the full completion of what God has to tell us today. We know that God's word, it's God-breathed. It's inspired by God. There's nothing missing here. And just because the Bible quotes other books in Scripture doesn't mean that we need those other books. David Guzik mentions how Paul in Acts 17 verse 28, Paul quotes a pagan poet. Acts 17 verse 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
So just because the Bible quotes other books, other prophets, other poets, right? Even the book of Enoch that some people freak out about, right? How it's found in Scripture. It doesn't mean that we need those books to complete what God has given us. God has given us exactly what we need in and through His Word. And our God is all-powerful enough and all-knowing enough to keep His Word and to preserve His Word. In 2 Peter chapter 1... Verse 2 and 4, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our Lord, of our God and Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Again, God, He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Don't buy the snake oil, right? Or when someone says, hey, I have this special thing from God. I have this special word from God. Don't buy that, right? We continue verse 16. From there they went to Beer, which is in the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Don't take this life verse and I'll go to the bar or get some Coronas or anything like that. Beer literally means well, right? So from here, they go to the well, which makes sense, right? It's the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well. All of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness, they went to Matana. And from Matana to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Barnoth, and from Barmoth in the valley, which is in the country of Moab, to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. So here what we get is a little bit of poetry, a little bit of a song that Israel has along this journey. They've created their own poetry, their own poems, their own songs on how God has provided for them in the midst of the desert. And certainly for some of us today, perhaps there's a certain worship song that you used to sing when you were in the desert, right? When you were in the valley. A song you used to sing when you were in a season of brokenness. Someone died, a dream died, something difficult happened. And you would sing this song in faith and in hope of what God would one day do. And it's so sweet when you're able to come through that season of a desert and then that song comes again and now you're able to sing it being reminded of God's faithfulness. Right? And have you tasted of that? And have you bear witness to what I'm saying, right? So again, it's so special for us to have these songs when God has provided for us and cared for us in dry seasons. It's good to have that. Good to write those things down because they prepare us for the next time we're in a desert again. They prepare us for the next time that we're going through difficulty and we can be reminded, hey, God has provided, us, provided for us in the past. He will certainly provide for us in the future. Verse 21, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we've passed through your territory. So once again here, we see Israel asking for permission to just pass by, as they did a few chapters earlier with the Edomites. The difference is that the Edomites were from their brother Esau, 
And the Edomites were much more passive with Israel. They told them they could not enter or go through their land. But what we're going to see here is they left them alone. In verse 23 and 24, look how the king of Sihon acts and reacts to the nation of Israel. Verse 23, But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of the land from Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the people of Ammon for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So again, this is very interesting. The Edomites, they said no, but they weren't aggressive towards Israel, so Israel left them alone. Here's Sihon, he says you can't go through, and now he declares war on them. He's completely destroyed. If you're quick, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. It's just a few pages to the right. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Bible gives us here a bit more insights to this battle, to this king, and to his heart. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. It says, But Sihon king of Heshbon would not let us pass through. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land. Jump down to verse 34. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. Then in verse 36 and 37, from Ar-Or, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and from the city that is in the ravine, as far as Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. Why? The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. So again, some interesting things to see here. We see, why was Israel so strong in their battles? Because of the Lord. The Lord was on their side. And basically, as long as they were obedient to God, everything was going great. As long as they were obedient to God, God delivered them to them. And as long as they stayed away from the areas that God had forbidden them to stay away from. Right? Easy application to us. Are you being obedient to God's word? Are you doing what God's word says? And are you staying away from those forbidden things? Those things that God's word says, it's sinful and evil. Are we staying away from it? An interesting thing on this king, right? Sihon, king of Heshbon. Here, Deuteronomy 2 gives us more insight that the Lord God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. And we need to be reminded that God never forces a person to reject him or to do evil. When someone's heart is hardened by God, God is simply giving a man or woman over to their evil heart and to their evil desires. God does not force anyone to sin or make anyone do evil. God just allows people to get their true desires when it comes to a certain point. 
If you keep asking God to sin, keep asking God to sin, keep asking God to sin, as we're going to see in the next chapter, he will allow you to go down that road. The wicked, he gives them into their devices. And we know that the end result of sin is death. So God, at a certain point, he gives people into their own devices. The difference is that our God is big enough and great enough and powerful enough to use the evil of mankind and the evil of Satan for his own purpose and his own pleasure. Our God is able to play, as you would say today, 4D chess, right? That's how God is able to play. In Genesis 50 verse 20, here's a great verse on this. Joseph tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God did not force Joseph's brothers to sin or to beat their brother or to throw him in a well or to sell him into slavery. But our God is great enough to use the evil of these brothers and turn it for good. Romans chapter 1. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 and 21. One final scripture on this that is so important. Because there's some groups in Christianity that they take this to an extreme where God, he's predestined all good. He's predestined all evil. He's done all this. And then I don't believe this verse would be here if that's the case. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, family, all mankind will be without excuse. Our God does not force anyone into evil. Our God does not predestine anyone to hell. But our God is powerful enough to use the evil desires of human beings and even Satan to work out his own purposes. Same is true with Satan, right? Satan thought he was winning when he crucified Jesus Christ on the cross. Satan thought he had won. And yet in the very evil Satan was scheming, it was his complete and utter demise and destruction, right? It's just our God is powerful enough. May we continue to trust in the mystery of our God and not try to make everything make perfect sense in our minds. Trust in the mystery of our God. We continue in Numbers chapter 21. So we have this King Sihon. He doesn't want to let Israel go through the land. He has disgust towards Israel. God gives him over to his own desires, just as he gives people over to their own desires and their own sin and darkness. He ends up getting destroyed. God is slowly giving them more and more of the promised land. Verse 25. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages, for Heshbon was in the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, let those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, 
let the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Verse 29, Woe to you, Moab! You have perished, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon. Then we laid waste as far as Nopath, which reaches to Medaba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. We see here God, he's raising up his army here. Right? We have a group of two million slaves that had kids, and now you have a group of millions of kids that grew up in the wilderness and in the desert. They didn't grow up in war. This wasn't 300, right? These little kids weren't raised to be soldiers from the moment they were born, right? They were out in the wilderness. They had no farming experience. Why? God would literally rain down bread from heaven every morning, right? They didn't have experience on irrigation or getting water. No, there was a rock that followed them and gave them water. God provided everything for them. But here we see God training up Israel for the later on, the bigger cities and the bigger battles that they would have to face later on. And how does God train them up? By fighting the smaller cities and the smaller villages today. And it's so true for us today. We need to be able to fight those small battles so we can fight bigger battles later on in the future. Does this not just make common sense to us, right? Yet so often we don't want to be faithful in the little battle. We say, God, when I get to the big, huge battle, I'll be there and I'll be ready to fight. It's just, now's not my time, right? This is just a small battle. I'll just wait for the big battle. It doesn't work that way. In Luke chapter 16... Verse 10, Jesus says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. This is just a truth throughout Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5, God warns them. He says, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how will you be able to contend with the horses? How? If these small battles, right, small battles against our sin completely destroy you and obliterate you and leave you falling into more and more depression, how are you going to be able to overcome bigger and bigger battles? And us overcoming sin, right, this may sting a bit, but Romans 6 makes it clear. If you were here and you're saying, I am saved, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven when I die, Sin has no power over you. That's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 6. So now when we come and we say, I just can't overcome this. I just can't do this. We're calling God and his word a liar. He's given us the power to do it. We are just simply not willing to be obedient and do what it takes to flee from the sin. That's what we have to continue to own and grow in. What are the small battles that God is putting in front of you today that you have to be faithful in so that God could do more in your life later on? A beautiful example of this is found in 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, we can turn there. One of our favorite 
Bible characters, right? This man after God's own heart. Most mentioned person in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ. And here David, he's able to have faith that God is going to be able to strengthen him to defeat Goliath because he had prior battle experience. David had prior experience trusting in and having faith in God to care for him and to protect him. 1 Samuel 17, verse 34, it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Again, it's found all throughout Scripture. If you want to be given the much, if you want to be able to overcome trials and temptations that continue to grow on a scale, we have to be able to overcome the small things today that God puts in front of us. We have to trust God, trust in faith. Does it take a lot of faith to grab a lion by the beard? A lot of faith or a lot of stupidity, right? One or the other, right? If you win, it took a lot of faith. If you lose, a lot of stupidity, right? But it takes faith to do this. But how much more faith does it take to take on a nine-foot warrior of pure muscle? It takes more faith. But God, he grows us up into these things. And if we can't be faithful in a little, he's not going to give us more. Right? One last guy on this, you could think of Moses. Is the first miracle Moses does with his staff tearing an ocean in two? That's not the first miracle. The first miracle ever, God says, hey, take your hand, put it in your coat. Take it out. And Moses freaks out that it's leprous, right? He starts freaking out. Hey, put your hand back in there and it's healthy. First thing he does with his staff, throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Moses freaks out. But as he continues to be faithful and obedient, God continues to grow him and strengthen him to do a little bit more. He's faithful in that. Okay, Moses, let's do a little bit more. Faithful in that, let's do a little bit more. That's how God works in us to do his great pleasure. Be faithful in the little things, family. Back to Numbers 21, verse 33. It says, And they turned and they went up by the way of Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land. And you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwell at Hashbon. Again, the Lord's so good to us. See how the Lord's encouraging Moses and the men of Israel. Hey, you're going to be able to defeat this man just as you defeated the last one. Just as you defeated the last one. And from the onset, we may think, hey, why is Og any different from the king of Shihon? Deuteronomy chapter 3. It tells us, I'll read it, Deuteronomy 3, verse 11. It says, For only all king of Bashan remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. 
Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits is its width, according to the standard cubit. So why did God encourage him? Because Og was a lot bigger than Sihon, right? Og was a literal giant. His bed was 13 feet long by 6 feet wide. Truly a king-sized bed, right? <laughs> right? That's who Og is. He was a beast of a man. So God, he encourages Moses as he's having to deal with a bigger enemy. And what does he encourage him in? He encourages him in who he is. And he encourages him, hey, remember, I was faithful to you in the last battle. Nothing's going to be different here. So verse 35, so they defeated him his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. Again, think back. Israel, this group of slaves that was freed from the giant of Israel and slavery, that became so fearful that their kids would be consumed by the giants of the promised land, now those kids are the ones destroying giants and taking on the promised land. Israel is in this beautiful and sweet season of obedience and of victory. But what happens? The next day, it always brings its own challenges, right? The next day brings its own challenges. That's why you got to continue to stay faithful to the Lord. Amen. Trust the Lord in our kids. Sometimes we're not willing to bring up difficult subjects in front of our kids. We say, ah, oh, God, they can't handle that. They can't deal with that. Again, trust the Lord and continue to... Give more and more to our sons and daughters, more and more responsibility, more and more of the things of God. Chapter 22, it says, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. A couple of things here, right? Verse 1 tells us that the children of Israel, they moved and they camped on the plains of Moab. They've dealt with their consequences, right? 38 years of consequence, they've dealt with it. And now it's a new and beautiful season where they're slowly moving into the promised land. Slowly, but surely their season of wandering is now over. And what this should reveal to us is that if we are in a season of wandering, because we each go through different seasons, maybe right now you're just in a season of wandering, that everywhere you look, you think you're in the middle of a desert, right? Maybe each devo, each Bible study, every time you go and you're just in a season of emptiness, nothingness. Be like the nation of Israel. Slow down and hear from the Lord. Because it's in this season of wandering that the Lord showed Israel how to walk, how to act, how to camp, how to move, how to worship, and how to be His own people. How to be obedient to them. So that the moment the season of wandering was over, the nation of Israel was able to get right to it. So often we go through seasons of wandering, and instead of pressing into the Lord to be ready when the season's over, we just whine and mumble in self-pity. And then what happens, the season of wandering is over, the next season's about to start, but you're not ready for the next season. 
So now you need to sort of catch up, and now you've delayed God's timing in a sense. His timing is perfect. He's omniscient. But our sin, our disobedience, it can delay the work that God wants to do in us. So again, the very same children that the parents did not trust the Lord to protect, they've now defeated the southern Canaanites, they've defeated the Amorites, and they've defeated the Bashanites. And again, who's the one leading them into battle and giving them all the victory? The Lord. It's all the Lord. Just have to be faithful to Him. Just have to be obedient to Him. Now, who comes on the scene? This new king, right? This new king of Moab, Balak, the son of Zippor. And this man, it's interesting because he's making decisions based on fear. Hopefully by now we know it's never good when we make decisions based on fear. He's making decisions based on fear and it results in him making himself an enemy of God. Had he known God or had he trusted in God, both he and his kingdom would have been fine. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, God himself tells the nation of Israel, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given it to Ar, the descendant of Lot, as a possession. So God had promised Moab, had promised Israel, hey, don't mess with them. I know Lot, he's not the most favorite guy in the Bible, but hey, I've given him and his descendants this land as a promise. So once again here, just the warning, fear only brings problems. Fear only brings problems. When we make decisions based on fear, fear of man, fear of missing out, fear of missing out on something else we love and desire, again, bad things happen. So this king, he's freaking out, verse 5 and 6. Then he sends messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come up from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they're settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. We come now to one of the strangest characters in the Bible. This man, Balaam. We're not given much background from him or who he is, where he's come from. What we do know is that this king, right, Balak, he trusted in him and his power to bless or to curse. So much so that he sends his own messengers to go grab him and bring him and do this for him. It's interesting because Balaam literally means Lord or devourer of people. Joshua 13 verse 22 tells us that he was a soothsayer. So this guy, he dealt a lot in the spiritual realm. His father, Beor, means destruction. So this guy's name is literally devourer of people, son of destruction, right? Don't name your kids this, right? Not, not a good guy, right? But King Balak, he's able to see that this is a spiritual battle. And again, we can think of Rahab. In Jericho, and when the spies come in, she's able to tell them, hey, the whole city's afraid of you guys. What you've done to Egypt, that pillar of cloud that we can see at a distance, 
that pillar of fire that we can see at a distance, there's no doubt that you serve the living God. And what a bad statement for the nation of Israel. So often they did not trust in their own God. Even though each day they're dealing with that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. And yet so often they would lack faith in the Lord their God. And yet their enemies at a distance, they would be able to see that pillar of cloud or that pillar of fire. And they would know, hey, you guys must serve the living God. Balak here, he's able to see that it's a spiritual battle. So now he sends for a soothsayer to pronounce a spiritual curse on this people so that he could defeat them. Verse 7 and 8, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. It tells us that they came with the diviner's fee in hand. So the king's messengers, they come with the standard fee, the standard price of a prophet within this time period. Then Balak's messengers send word to him. And this is exactly what they tell him, right? Because they give him the words of King Balak. What were those words verse 5 and 6? They tell Balaam, look, a people has come from Egypt. See how they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once and curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Then Balaam responds and says, hey, okay, I've heard what you've told me. You want me to curse this people that have come out of Egypt, whose God is the living God. Then he tells them in verse 8, lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back word to you, as the Lord, the God of this people that you're asking me to curse, uh, let me wait and pray and see what he has to tell me tonight. Is there really anything here for Balaam to pray about? Is there anything for him to consider? At all, there's nothing. We need to realize that growing spiritually is doing the practical thing the vast majority of the time. And then there's that little tiny time period when we see great and grand spiritual miracles that God calls us to and we need to be faithful to. There's no question here for Balaam. He knows this goes exactly against God's word and God's people and God himself. There is nothing to pray about here. And so often we know what is sinful in scripture. So often we know exactly what we should do. We know what we should do with that girl or guy. We know what we should do with our family. We know what we should do with our kids. We know what we should do with this idol or this vice in our life. And instead of just being obedient to what we know what we should do, what do we say? Hey, let me pray about this. Let me pray about this. I know this is causing me to sin. I know this is destroying my marriage. I know if my kids continue down this path, their lives are going to be destroyed spiritually. But let me pray about this. We have to be so careful. David Guzik says, Balaam is beginning on a dangerous course, entertaining, planning, and setting his heart on something he knew to be sin. And he looks for a spiritual excuse to pursue the sin. Because of his love for money, Balaam essentially tried to manipulate God into granting him special exemption. I've been there. 
We've all been there. I remember being when I wasn't walking with the Lord in a sexual immoral relationship, praying that God would bless this relationship and bless this marriage. We've all been there. When we're in the middle of sin and we're saying, God, would you bless this? God, I know what I'm doing is sinful, but God, would you somehow do something with this? I really like this idol. Would you be okay with this idol? Would you be okay with this sin? And Balaam, he was known for being in touch with the spiritual realm. Again, that's why none of us are above this. Every month, it's so sad, pastors fall every single month. I always think of the book of Proverbs, chapter 7, how it talks about the woman that causes this man to follow her, and the arrow strikes his liver, and he dies. And at the end of the chapter, it says, many mightier men than him have fallen. There have been many mightier spiritual giants that have fallen. And yet we think we can play with sin. We think we can make excuses. We can somehow pray about these sinful and disobedient things to God and his word. Family, may we learn from Balaam's mistakes. Stop trying to pray or rationalize the things that are plain and simple in Scripture. Just be obedient. Verse 9, right? The night has happened. These guys are sleeping in Balaam's house. He's saying, hey, let me pray about this. Even though he knows it's sin, he knows it's sinful. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Now, is our God all-knowing? Is our God all-powerful? Did God know exactly who these men were? Yes. So often in Scripture, God asks us questions trying to wake us up, right? Trying to realize where we are, kind of like with Adam and Eve. Adam, Eve, where are you, right? Where are you? That wasn't because God didn't know exactly where they were. That was for Adam and Eve to look at their own lives and say, where have I come to? How did I get here? I used to be so close to the Lord. I used to have such a relationship with God. How have I drifted so far? It's the same thing here with Balaam. Who are these men with you? What's the company you're keeping recently? Are you hanging out with God's people? Are you hanging out with these foreign people? Who are you with? You can think of the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter, after he sins, what's the company he's with? He's right back with the disciples. Judas, he sins. What's the company he goes to? He goes to the Pharisees. And he tries to spend time with the Pharisees. He tries to get right with them. Hey, would you make this right? What's the company that's around you, family? Do you find yourself spending more and more time with the people of God? Or perhaps you've drifted. Who are the people with you? Who are these people with you? Who are these men with you, Zach? Are these the people of God? Are you with God's people stirring you up to love and good works? Or how are you warming yourself up with the enemy's fire? Verse 10 through 12, so Balaam says to God, right? He's answering God here. God, in case you didn't know, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, he's called for me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt. I don't know if you know these people, God, and they've covered the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And our God, being that perfect father, so kind, so gracious, so loving, God answers him, Balaam, you shall not go out with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Again, God, he's kind enough. He doesn't say, you idiot, you moron. What are you doing? What have you been praying about here? There's nothing to pray about. No, God makes it crystal clear for him. And the Holy Spirit makes it crystal clear for each and every one of us. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Because Balaam is going through a situation that's no different than many of us go through. Balaam is going through a temptation. He's being tempted. We continue to see because of the chapter, his temptation is money. Maybe it's the honor. Maybe it's the prestige. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now we've read that verse frequently throughout the book of Numbers. Now check out verse 12 and 13. Therefore let him who thinks stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Again, the Holy Spirit makes it so clear for us. God himself, not only does he have his hand on the thermostat, right? He has his hand to make sure it's not too hard. It's not too soft. It's the right temperature for you to be able to deal with the temptation in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, in and through what He's already done in your life. God makes sure that it's not too hard and it's not too easy. But then He also makes the escape route for us. Here He's making the escape route easy for Balaam. He's saying, no, don't go with them. Don't curse them. They're blessed people. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, a verse that's hitting me harder and harder in this season. Hebrews 7, 25, speaking of Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus right now, right? The work of the cross isn't just done and over. Jesus is right now praying and interceding on our behalf. Just as he told Peter, Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you because Satan, he wants to sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you. It's the same thing for us. So if every time we're tempted, God gives us the way to escape. If every time we're tempted, God has his hand on the thermostat to make sure it doesn't get too hot or too cold. And on top of that, in every temptation, in every moment of life, Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, our big brother, is praying for us. What excuse do we have to make the choice to jump into the temptation and sin? What excuse do we have? Again, temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was sinless. He was tempted by Satan. He's gone through every temptation, everything we could go through, and yet he came out blameless. It is sinful the moment we bite and we cling to the temptation and we say, in our heart, I am going to do this. The moment in our heart we say, okay, I'm going to do this, we sin. We sin in our heart. We sin in our mind. The lure can be out there to catch the fish. But when is the fish in trouble? When he's just staring at the lure? No, the moment he bites that lure and realizes there's a piece of metal in there with a sharp pointy end, that's when he's in trouble. And it's the same thing for us. The temptations out there, we need to make a choice to run and flee from temptation. Balaam, he's not. He's playing with this temptation. Verse 13, So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. 
And the princes of Moab rose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Again, notice the heart of Balaam here. He's not saying, hey, I can't do this. Forgive me. I'm, I'm being a dummy here. I'm sinning against God. He's saying, hey, I have to do this, right? It's not what I want to do. This is just what I have to do. This is what's in Scripture, right? This is what my parents are telling me. This is what I have to do to keep my job. It's not what I want to do. I really want to go with you guys. I really want to do this. But this is what God just wants me to do. Again, that's why the chief way that we overcome temptation is growing in love with Jesus Christ. The greater our love for Christ, the greater we realize His love for us, the more we can say, that's just a stupid temptation. When a husband is just completely in love with his wife, doesn't matter what woman comes and tempts him. When he's completely in love with his wife, it does not matter what comes his way. And the same is true for us. Balaam was not in love with the Lord his God. He wasn't in love with him. He was in love with the money. He was in love with the blessings God had given him, the blessings from his spiritual aptitude, but he was not in love with God himself. He's saying, hey, this is what I have to do. It's not what I want to do, but I just have to be obedient to this. Again, may we grow in our heart to want to be obedient to God because we love him so much. Verse 15 Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And family, this is the great danger when we're merciful to temptation and to sin. When we're merciful to our temptation, when we're merciful to our sin, Satan always comes around with something shinier, something prettier, something bigger, something that our lure of our heart wants even greater. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 8 and 9, this is why Jesus warns us. He tells us, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Again, realize the gruesome picture that our Lord and Savior is writing for us here. It's telling us. It's better if your hand is causing you to sin that you chop it off and then with your other hand you grab the hand and you throw it away from you than for you to come into heaven with all your hands. Again, what a beautiful picture for us. Don't have any mercy on your temptation. Don't have any mercy on your temptation. So often we are so kind to our temptations, right? Oh man, I, every night I struggle with my phone, but I got to be merciful to my phone. I got to keep it around. I got to protect it. Can't be too mean to it. I can't just get rid of it. Can't just turn off half of it. No, I got I to protect it. I got to keep it around. How often we do that? We need to have no mercy with our sin and temptation. Cut it off. Better to go into heaven with a flip phone than to get, to get into hell with your iPhone, right? That's what he's telling us there. Better to get an education at home from MDC than to go off to Harvard and lose your life. Now, does every single person that go to Harvard go to hell? Not at all. Not what I'm saying. But is there a greater temptation out there? Is it going to be more difficult out there? Absolutely. Is it possible? You have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many godly men have gone out to school. But we have to search our own heart and say, Lord, what's the lure in my heart? 
What is my propensity to sin? Each of us, we have our different propensities. Some guys here, they're more prone to get in a fight with a random stranger. Other guys here, they're more prone to just wallow in self-pity and get depressed and do nothing. We have to be honest and real to ourselves and say, what is my propensity for sin? And then have no mercy on it. Get rid of it completely. Balaam is having mercy on his temptation. So Balak, he just sends more. Satan sends a prettier girl, a prettier guy, someone that makes more sense, more money, a bigger job opportunity, a bigger job on Sunday morning. Satan will send us those greater temptations. Verse 16 and 17, And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly and I will do whatever you say to me therefore please come and curse this people for me so now he's given bigger promises of honor wealth and a wish from the king they just came at first with just the normal prophet's price now they're coming back with hey we will certainly honor you greatly Right, you know what I'm talking about, my friend Mr. Benjamin over here, right? That's what he's saying. And now we will do whatever you say. Please come and curse these people. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his full house of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say to me. Do you guys see how his words are not making sense here? Right? Hey, even if you give me a house, a car, even the Bentley, right? I still wouldn't do it for that, right? It seems as if Balaam is really naming his price. Naming what is worth it in his mind to sin against the Lord. What's the certain amount of pleasure that will get us to sin against God? He's saying, I know this was wrong in the past. I've said it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But let me pray about it one more time and see if God says something different. Again, we know Balaam and what his desires are at this point. He wants the money, the honor, the wish answered from the king. Verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now, did God change his mind or change his commands? It's difficult for us to see, but this is just like we talked about with Sihon, king of Heshbon. This is just like Pharaoh. We need to be careful that we're not continually kicking against God and his word. Because if you keep kicking against God and his word, sooner or later, he will give you over to your wicked desires. God has not changed his mind. God is saying, Balaam, we both know what you really want. So why don't you just go ahead and do it? Same thing happened with Judas, right? Jesus says, whatever you do, do it quickly. We both know what you want. Why don't you go and serve your true God, your true Lord? Verse 22, go through this quickly. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. 
Then the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against them. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the angel saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into a field. So Balaam strunk the donkey and turned her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on one side and a wall on the other side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she now lays down under Balaam, so Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And I think it's crazy enough that a donkey is talking. Verse 29 is even crazier. Balaam says to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said no. Again, strange chapter in Scripture, right? <laughs> strange chapter in Scripture. But what we see here is that it's difficult. It is hard to obey God, but it is simple. It is so simple to obey God. It is so simple to see God in our lives. So simple, right? Taken from Geico, a donkey could do it. So easy, a donkey could do it. You see, the donkey was able to see God. David Guzik says the donkey is the perfect picture of a simple and unspectacular yet obedient follower of God. Sensitive to God's direction, a thorn to the disobedient, and a victim of the wrath of the disobedient. Oftentimes we think God will use me because of my gifts, my power, my glory. That's not why God will use you. God will use you because you're just that obedient follower of God. Whether it's a donkey like me, right, talking here Wednesdays and Sundays. Whether it's a young kid with his Lunchables, his bread and his fish. It doesn't take someone spectacular or great or mighty to be used by God. It just takes the simple, obedient follower of God. I encourage you, be that faithful, obedient follower of God. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to be crazy. Be obedient in the little things that God has given you. Right? A great study from Joe Foge at the West Coast Pastors Conference. What's in your hand? Be obedient to that. Right now you're a mom. Be obedient. Be the best mom you could be. You're a dad, you're a business owner, be the best boss you could be. You're working at Target or Starbucks, say, be the best barista you could be, right? Be the best person in the back. Be the best that you can be. Be that obedient follower of God, and he's going to continue to grow you. I do think Balaam here, he's dealing with the pressure of his disobedience to God. And when we're being disobedient to God, we can sense and feel the pressure of it. And it drives us to sort of explode on people, right? The anger comes out of nowhere. Now we explode on our spouse. We explode on our kids because we're trying to do this sin and get away with it and not deal with the consequences of sin, which is always death. I believe that's why he starts answering back the donkey, right? 
Because he's so mad, he's so angry, he's dealing with all the pressure, all the difficulties of being disobedient to God that he strikes at his own donkey. He talks back to his own donkey. So irrational and so full of anger. Again, peace can only come from the grace of God. True peace in life, it only comes when we're obedient to God and His Word. And yet the more and more disobedient we are to God, the more disobedient that we are to God's Word, the more we're out of fellowship with God's people, the less peace we'll have and the more that the enemy will come in and destroy our lives. You see it with Judas. Judas, he wasn't obedient to Christ, wasn't obedient to His Word, stopped fellowshipping with God's people, and it cost him his life cost them everything. So the donkey says, man, I've always been a great donkey to you. Why are you hitting me, right? Why are you doing all this stuff to me? I've never done this to you this day. Verse 30, he says, Balaam answers him back. No, you've been a pretty good donkey, right? Verse 31, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. 